Thank you for tuning in to the Greater European Talks. This is a note from the editor. This episode of the Greater European Talks was recorded on the 7th of November 2020. About five minutes after the session, several news organizations have called the race for President-elect Joe Biden. At the time of editing, the incumbent President Donald Trump has not yet conceded the race. Welcome everyone to the Greater European Talks. Today we have a special episode on the US elections, which as of now have not necessarily been called in favor of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, however, one of our speakers will speak in favor of why they believe Joe Biden will be the presumptive winner in a moment. We have three speakers joining us today uh, from both across the pond and here in Europe. We have Megan right now from New York. Wanna say hello? Hi everyone. We have Annalisa from, well, from Estonia, but here in Bruges with me. Uh, hi, everyone. And we have a familiar voice, um, be that better or worse. We have Jack all the way from Boston. Hey, everyone. And as usual, myself, also from Bruges, still locked in with the wonderful coronavirus lockdown. So we are going to have more of an open discussion today on the US elections, what the initial election, how it went, what that means, because of course it has been a, a difficult one to say the least. Um, and then looking at more what this, uh, what Joe Biden's presidency is going to mean for the transatlantic relationship, especially the EU-US relationship. And lastly, what does it mean in more of a global context? So to start with, Jack, why has Joe Biden won? Yeah, so um, under the US system, uh, in order to ascend to the presidency, to win the presidency, a candidate needs 270 electoral votes. Electoral votes are decided, just as a sort of a primer for the European audience, uh, Philippe, uh, it is the total number of senators, two senators plus however many representatives a state has. Uh, the smallest and least populous states will have three electors. Uh, the most populous, of course, will have a larger number of electors. Uh, in order to win the presidency, a candidate needs 270. That represents the sort of the 51% mark. Currently, as it stands, with the results that have been returned and the states that have been called um, of sort of the, the 50 U.S. states and the, ter- the, uh, the District of Columbia, uh, Joe Biden currently has 253 electoral votes. Donald Trump has 214. So there is, what, that's about a well, 40, 40 difference, 40 electoral vote difference. Um, six states haven't been called yet. It represents a total of 71 electoral votes um, as it currently stands. Some have called as of Saturday morning when we're recording this. Some states have called Arizona in Biden's favor, but that's looking a little bit less clear than it was on Tuesday or even Wednesday morning. Um, I'd argue that the, the states that Joe Biden is currently ahead in uh, with the vote counts, he's up by about uh, 7,000 votes in the state of Georgia, uh, which would give him 16 electoral votes. Should he win that state, that'll put him at 269. Uh, he's also ahead in the state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, which would deliver him 20 electoral votes. Again, that would put him well over the top, even without Georgia. Um, Nevada, the state of Nevada, has also not returned its results. They are, uh, if you look at the internet, uh, people are making fun of their uh, lack of a fast counting clip. Uh, Nevada would deliver seven electoral or six electoral votes. Um, and all three of those states Biden is leading in. Um, Pennsylvania is a little bit of a quagmire because it looks like it might become the center of some legal action. Uh, from the Supreme Court and become the uh, the Florida 
of the 2020 election. Of course, that's a reference to the uh, 2000 election. Um, that's looking less, that is, it, it looks less that that's going to actually be an issue, um, seen as though all of the votes that have currently been tabulated for Joe Biden in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania are not uh, the problematic ballots that the Trump campaign is trying to discredit. Uh, so even without those uh, difficult ballots, which were returned in the mail after Election Day, Biden would still win Pennsylvania, even if the Supreme Court decided to throw it all out. And there's no way the Supreme Court is going to allow the Trump campaign to uh, suppress the vote count or stop the vote count in a number of different states. If it was just the one state, if it was just the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and that was the state to decide the election, I think you would see uh, the Trump campaign would have a leg up. But seen as though there are multiple paths for, for Biden to take, Pennsylvania is not necessarily um, as, as needed. Well, thank you for the, the introduction. It should be very useful for many of our European listeners who maybe don't quite understand or don't want to understand, to be honest, how it works. And sadly, of course, Kanye has um, relinquished his, his campaign. We were all hoping from, from Europe who's going to win. Uh, but sadly, he's still got, I think, 60,000 votes. No? Quite a lot of votes. A lot of votes. Um, so, yeah. I mean, Megan and Annalisa and Jack, for that matter, what, what were kind of your initial maybe fears or worries and how have they kind of turned out now in terms of the actual election itself we started three days ago now yeah um i can start on this i think that leading up to the election um we were seeing this rhetoric from the trump uh side that there was going to be all of this fraudulent mail-in voting. Um, we saw at the presidential debates that he was talking about how mail-in voting is leads to rampant fraud, um, which we know to not be the case in the U.S. Um, we've been doing mail-in voting as long as we've been doing elections. Um, college students and members of the armed forces always vote absentee and by mail. Um, so it is a, it's a trusted institution in the U.S. Um, so that was extremely concerning to me to see the president of the United States up on the debate stage talking about um, and kind of just making up uh, with absolutely no basis in the truth that mail-in voting was going to lead to rampant fraud. Um, and then we saw he was just kind of setting the stage for the same arguments that he would be making as the vote started to roll in. And we saw that he was challenging um, the legitimacy of ballots that were received uh, after Election Day, even though states have their own rules about when ballots can be postmarked and things like that. Um, so one of our, or at least my biggest fears was that um, President Trump was not going to accept the outcome of the election. He had been asked also a couple of times on the debate stage um, whether there would be a peaceful transfer of power, and he kind of always um, got out of it or didn't didn't commit one way or another. Um, so that was one of my biggest concerns. Also, if you were kind of on the internet, I'm <laughs> very active on TikTok, and the night before the election, we saw you know, jokes and memes being made about like this being the next civil war and like, what are we all wearing to the race war? Are we coordinating colors and things like that? And um, as funny as it was, it's also deeply concerning. Um, and then so just kind of not knowing what what the, the aftermath of the election was going to look like, whether there was going to be riots, we saw, you know, uh, cities boarding up their businesses and things like that. Um, in different major cities across the U.S. So there was a lot of fear um, being stoked about what could come after. And I think that, yeah, all of it very concerning. 
Do you think any of those have materialized so far? Well, it's hard to... So we have seen protests um, kind of break out uh, about folks wanting... Uh, on the Trump side, some people protesting to stop the count, others protesting to continue the count, often not in the, they were not coordinated in any way. It's, it's interesting. I don't think we've seen the violence that was kind of being predicted, but also I think we'll have to wait until the election is called, um, to see what will really happen. Sure, sure. I think this was a part of the sense of like, um, sensitization. Of the U.S. media, were kind of focused on these big violent protests uh, quite a lot. And um, I think there was also still... the whole idea of um, on election night, you had this idea of a red mirage and a blue shift. Um, the mm. way that votes are counted in the U.S. is they count the in-person voting first, and then they move to count the uh, the mail-in ballots. And to build a little bit off of Megan's point, the issue, or at least in my reading of it, the president's issue with mail-in ballots wasn't the fact that people could vote by mail, because that's how he votes himself. He votes down in Florida, and he lives in the District of Columbia, 1600 Pennsylvania Ave. And he himself votes by mail, of course. Um, his concern, or at least early on, and I think he probably changed it to feed his, his narrative of, of losing, is that he didn't like states sending them out. That it, where I live in Massachusetts, we had to ask for a ballot. They sent us a little postcard and they said, how do you want to vote? You know, do you want to vote in person or do you want us to send you a ballot? Early on, the president would have said that's fine. But there are some states uh, who said, we're going to send you a ballot no matter what. If you're registered to vote, you're getting a ballot, you can fill it out and send it back or you can vote in person. Some states, um, I think Colorado's uh, one of them, they just do that. They've done that before the pandemic. They're going to do it after the pandemic. And there's been no issue with it whatsoever. Um, so that sort of undermines the, you know, it, it undermines a little bit the whole idea of, of fraud and that the election's being rigged and everything. So back to, to Red Mirage Blue Shift, the ballots that were received in the mail are going to be counted after the election day uh, votes are tabulated. And more Republicans or mo more voters who are going to vote for Trump were going to come out in person. So a lot of the results early on, uh, Philippe, I know you were up, you probably saw a lot of these states were returning higher volumes of uh, Republican votes. Trump was up by about 400,000 votes in Pennsylvania during uh, or on election night or, or shortly thereafter. And his vote's been, or his, his lead has eroded to a net gain, a positive, uh, I think, 30,000 for Biden. Because as they've mm -hmm. started to count all of the mail-in ballots, which heavily favored Joe Biden, there's a blue shift that all of these states go from red or counties even have gone from red to blue. And that's where you get a lot of the Joe Biden's trying to steal the election. Uh, a lot of these votes are being dumped from the Trump campaign when in reality, it's just the ballots haven't been counted. Um, I know that the Associate Justice Kavanaugh of the Supreme Court uh, had to walk back a comment when he said, you know, the Democrats are going to try and throw the election. And he kind of someone probably explained to him. Uh, maybe it was the ghost of RBG, that you can't throw an election until all the votes have been counted. And as it stands on Saturday morning, not all of the votes have been counted. Some of the votes should maybe, there is some issues with when they were sent or when they weren't sent, but I think that that's going to represent a strong minority of the votes. A lot of, I'd argue that 99.9% .9 of the votes cast in the U.S. in person or in the mail were legal ballots. That's it. And now to move on to a European perspective, Annalisa, what were you, what were your 
thoughts really on the election, assuming you also stayed up quite late and watched it? <laughs> no, so I, I did not stay up quite late because as, uh, uh, you know, Jack and Megan were just saying, um, we knew it so much in advance that this uh, election will be different. There will be mail-in uh, voting uh, it will take time. So on, on Wednesday, I just went to bed with a very peaceful heart because I, I knew that we will be in this race for quite some time. It's a marathon. It's definitely not a sprint. Um, but now what has become really surprising, in my opinion, is that, you know, we still don't have a clear result. Mm. Right. So is it taking a bit too long? Like, you know, there are also these memes of like, you know, what do you do if your democracy is buffering? Like it's, it's <laughs> literally loading. And especially for me as an Estonian, it is it is ridiculous because, you know, in Estonia we have e-voting. Like, you know, participating in elections takes like two minutes for a, a citizen. Uh, and also, of course, the results are out uh, much faster, right? Mm -hmm. So also whenever I saw like some videos about like people queuing in the voting uh, polls, um, yeah, um, for, you know, eight hours, like it, it, I cannot comprehend it. Um, but yeah, if I just may, like, I, I think like the, the three points like I would like to make now is, yeah, first, just, just like still building on uh, on Megan about the disinformation uh, campaign, uh, if you may put it like this, because um, obviously after 2016, I think a big um, topic regarding US elections is the entire um, yeah problem of disinformation, but also like foreign meddling. Um, and I think, you know, w w we're safe to say right now that there hasn't been too much foreign meddling. But if you um, if you look at it, then the only disinformation campaign perhaps um, has been coming from the president himself and from the White House. Um, so that has really been like, you know, how is this possible? And also like, you know, so many people were predicting this in advance as well, right? So I remember even like discussing this with one of my mentors in June that like he was saying that, you know, there is a scenario where Trump has to be removed from the White House by military force, you know, and that was in June. And now we're in November and like, you know, we still don't know what's going to happen. And like, you know, um, November, December is still coming. Um, but then um, my second point would be that, um, you know, whenever someone asked about my prediction for the outcome, I always said 50-50, but I didn't think that it would actually be 50-50, you know, because if you like we're watching how the votes were coming in, like the, the margins were crazy, like razor thin, right? So 0.3% in like, you know, in so many states, like how can this happen? Um, but I think if you, um, it's really like a, a, a indicator of, uh, of some uh, wider uh, phenomena. Uh, so first of all, it just really shows the deep polarization of the US uh, uh, society. And I would like to hear Megan's and Jack's take on it as well as Americans. Uh, but just looking at it from here, like, um, you know, the polarization, the deep divides, um, and even like, you know, parallel realities and social bubbles. Like, and, and now it's just a question, like, you know, how sustainable is it? Uh, can we live like this? Can, can the Americans continue living like this? Um, and, and, and now also, like, you know, even if Biden becomes president, the Congress is still going to be in a gridlock, right? So it's not like there's a clear majority on either side. It's, it's, the Congress is also almost 50-50. So whatever Biden, uh, you know, wants to have in his program and wants to achieve, he will have a very hard time. And also, like, you know, 
um, so far he has been um, this uh, this person of saying like you know we need to calm down and we you know this uh, we're in it together and he will be a president for uh, the entire of uh, US. Um, then he's facing a, a tough four years. Um, and and just the last point on this. Um, just the fact that Trump has almost gotten 50% means that Trumpism is a force, right? It is not a passing thing. Um, it is really a political force we need to reckon with. And uh, I, I would just want to put in the question of like, what will happen in 2024, right? So will we see Trump running again? Will we see Trump's son running again or his daughter? Like, you know, what is going to happen? Because, well, I mean, it is very likely that Biden will be a one-term president simply because of his age. Um, but even if he wins now, it does not solve a lot of problems in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and just my, my last point right now would just be uh, the interesting point of uh, how money doesn't guarantee success. Right. Um, and if you look at it, like, so one Democratic candidate that was uh, um, keeping an eye on, on Twitter was uh, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. And they really found his campaign inspiring. And like, you know, he, he really like put his heart and soul into this. And he was running against uh, Lindsey Graham. Um, and, you know, he made records into like raising incredible sums uh, of, of, of like, you know, for his campaign. Um, and, and he didn't win. You know, he lost by almost like 10%. Um, and again, I think this is also an, an indicator of a wider, a wider phenomenon, uh, meaning that the uh, Democrats, um, I think they were more confident that they're going to win by a landslide, but they're not and they didn't. Um, so I think they also have a lot of introspection to do. I think it's very interesting you raised as well the fact that, of course, the Senate is most likely, depending on how Georgia goes, of course, but most likely also going to be still in Republican hands. And for Europe, that's a big problem. Uh, Major ratification probably couldn't happen through there. And as you mentioned as well, yes, Biden may have won the most votes in US history, but who has won the second most votes in US history? Trump. And so it also, yeah, shows that there is a lot of forces that are going to continue to be at play. I mean, Megan and Jack, if you want any sort of responses to Alice's comment there, I know we want a little bit about the polarization. Do you still definitely feel that's going to continue for the next four years or whether you hope the worst is over? Yeah, I think absolutely like America is more divided than it has ever been. And I think that's why Joe Biden running as this unity candidate was a really smart move on his part, Mm. Um, continuously kind of reaffirming that he will be a president for the American people, not just for one party. I also think that we've seen him considering in the news is reporting that he's considering um, appointing some Republicans to to positions in his cabinet. Um, And there's been discussion about whether that's kind of a good thing or a bad thing. I think from an optics perspective, that might be a positive thing, you know, to kind of unify people. Um, But this hyper-partisanship, I I agree with Annalisa, is not sustainable um, in the long term. And I think that... um, it's going to be really difficult with a Senate, like with for Joe Biden to get anything done. And I think that some blame might fall on him for, you know, saying that he's not getting anything done, but we really need to look at the reasons. And that being that pending Georgia, that he's not going to have a Congress that's in his favor. Um, I think that's going to it's it's going to make things really challenging for him. Um, and I don't think that it'll make things better uh, if Republicans kind of just oppose anything that he tries to put through Congress. Um, I don't think that's a good look for either for them either. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'll jump in quickly. Um, I think to a lot of Americans and, and to Europeans and, and sort of outsiders, if you look at the map, the electoral map, you see a lot more red than you see blue. Um, and it's somewhat of an allusion to the whole idea that, um, you know, in the American system, people vote land doesn't. You know, you have all of these, uh, you know, the, the Wyoming and the Nebraska's and the Dakota's, you know, are small, least popular, uh, smaller population states. Uh, what I mean by this or where I'm going with this is that the Democrats, at least Democratic voters, are consistently, they outnumber Republican voters. I don't know by what factor, uh, but you even see that in you know, nearly 74 million people voting for Donald Trump. Of course, some of those are Republicans who switched over. Um, some are, you might have a small degree of, uh, within that 70 million uh, people who switched over from the Democrats uh, to vote for Trump. Um, there's a bit of a concerning trend if, if you look down ballot. This election is pivotal at the presidential level and even at the senatorial level. But if you look down at the state house level, the, you know, as Philippe, you, you know, and you've made fun of, I worked on the 2020 census. Uh, what that is going to do for the next 10 years uh, is it, the, the U.S. census goes into the apportion, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, what's the word, the apportionment of each congressional district. Now, those districts are drawn by the state and they're drawn by the state houses, the state legislatures. That's a different discussion as to whether or not that's a fair and, you know, nonpartisan way to do it. I'd argue no, but that's what the system is. The elected officials in each state draw the congressional borders, and that's where you get the whole idea of gerrymandering. So I think what you're going to see is because the Democrats didn't get the gains that they thought they were going to get, even within the state governments, uh, you're going to see the Republicans start to realize that their hold on the country, at least from a demographic standpoint, you know, the country's becoming a lot less white. Um, I think uh, white Americans are going to be a minority within the next probably 10 years. Uh, I don't know what the official figure is. So I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans who are primarily their base is white men uh, and to some degree women. Uh, overwhelmingly, of course, you know, not, you know, there are some, you know, people of color, blacks, Latinos, and, and clearly you saw they came out for Trump. Uh, I think they're going to use the census data and they're going to consolidate their power. And, you know, that is just going to fuel sort of what Megan and Elise were talking about with the whole partisanship, is you are going to have a minority party, at least in terms of how many people believe in the Republican or even the Trump ideal, but they're going to be able to restructure power in such a way that they can cram the whole idea of gerrymandering. They're going to cram uh, districts to be Democratic and spread out Republican districts uh, so that they can get a, a numbers appeal. Um, and that's going to be something concerning. That's going to be something to, to work on. And, and, and how you fix that, I, I, I just don't know. Uh, why do you not have solutions to U.S. democracy return, honestly? Why, why I mean, we've been around for, what, 240 years? That's uh, a little that's older true. for the, for the U.S. You know, we've, we've gone through difficult times before. Um, I, I'd like to think that we're going to get over this one. Maybe it's a little bit naive. Um, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that you know, civil war is eminent, that, you know, it's going to break out anytime soon. But there are, there are concerns, I think that there, mm -hmm. you know, there is such a divide. And it's not even a, a north south divide, uh, which we saw in the 1800s. You know, Trumpism exists in my state of Massachusetts, which is overwhelmingly a democratic state, just as, just as it exists in Alabama and Georgia. I will say it, it is, uh, and, and last comment, so I know that we can move on. But maybe some positive takeaways is it's heartening. It's, it, it's great to see that Georgia has the potential to turn blue. Uh, 
Georgia's never been a swing state. And the fact that it was, it is still, you know, wait, it could determine the results of this presidential race is nuts to think about. Uh, Texas as well, a little bit of a pipe dream. Uh, maybe in 2020, I thought it was going to go blue. Um, but we didn't have that conversation eight years ago. Um, that's kind of weird that Texas might be able to turn blue. That's where Reagan, you know, that, that's sort of the, the Reagan, you know, Republican conservative model lives. Um, and even places like Florida could have gone blue. It's gone blue in the past. Uh, Arizona flipped and sort of the Southwest. So I think Democrats are starting to make gains, but there's going to be some, some systemic Republican pushback. Definitely, definitely. And I want to pick up one comment there, which is you mentioned, it's almost become sort of urban versus non-urban rather than let's say north-south. And that is a global trend. I mean, the US currently has almost 80% of its population living in cities. Um, just look at the statistics there in 2019. And even the world urbanization is increasing quite rapidly. In Asia now, 50% of the population now lives in cities. In Europe, it's lower, but even so, certain countries have very high urbanization. Um, last comment on this. Do you think this is a future trend of urban versus non-urban kind of polarization? Well, that's, I think that's why people are so gung-ho about holding on to the electoral college. Because people, you know, a rancher in... Wyoming or Montana, their state's going to deliver three electoral votes. In the, in the grand scheme of things, compared to California's 55, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean much. But if you look at an individual voter's impact, a voter in Wyoming is going to have a larger voting power than someone in Los Angeles or someone in maybe a more urban area on the east or the west coast because there's just more of them. Um, so mm -hmm. I think you're going to see, and you kind of already see it, you know, the Democrats are in the cities and the Republicans are, are sort of the more rural folks. So I, th mm -hmm. I, I it's going to be a, it's going to be a central factor in, in American politics. Uh, mm. so I, it's not going to go away. And I think that's why people, you know, are going to worry that it's the, the political elites on the coasts who decide the elections. I mean, they, they kind of already do, but that's because people vote, not land and more people live in the cities it only, it does only make sense, but I think people are still going to look to hold on to the 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 power that they have. I think we're going to move on from here. We've spoken a lot about kind of the domestic um, election itself. Let's hope things get resolved soon. Uh, Joe Biden has historically, and as vice president um, under Barack Obama, been quite pro multilateralist. So he was very supportive of NATO. Um, he was also quite supportive of the European project. Um, actions in the Balkans, for example. But he has still sort of continued the general US trend of being more skeptic towards the Europeans and more sort of approachable to US power worldwide. What do we think are the main unique points that Joe Biden might bring to the transatlantic um, relationship? Do you want to come in? And Lisa, do you want to start? Um, yeah, I can start. So, um... Maybe one of the biggest things and, and perhaps also in a way the most important thing is just that Joe Biden represents this like, you know, arc of stability in a way, just, you know, considering the crazy four years we've been through and, and the fact that we're still in the pandemic um, and also considering what is going on in the EU currently, right? So things are not uh, very rosy in the EU itself as well. So, you know, uh, some member states having issues. Um, also, you know, the fact that Angela Merkel's term is going to end at one point. Uh, so, you know, having this president on the American side who 
well, I mean, at least like, you know, um, honors European Union for what it is and like, you know, understands its value. Like that's already a good starting point, in my opinion. Um, and the same goes for NATO. So um, uh, like Joe Biden has no problem, um, you know, reaffirming Article 5 and then saying that, you know, NATO is important. Um, and, and also like uh, working on it, whereas from Trump, we, we never got that, you know, he, he never said anything about Article 5. Um, uh, like if we talk about Trump and NATO, though, then I think one thing is um, that, you know, we must give him some credit for and it's perhaps the, the budget uh, related uh, debate. Uh, and this is something that will uh, definitely continue into the future, the entire topic of burden sharing within NATO. Um, and, and, and just this one point I would like to make is that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really about defense accounting, like, you know, which like numbers are on which line, but it's really about like, why are we doing this? Why are we in this together? And what's our plan? And this is actually my critique of NATO right now that um, and they should really work on, um, first of all, a new strategic concept. Uh, but then, uh, work, like, you know, in the process of working on that, uh, you would really have to redefine um, you know, division of labor and uh, who does what, um, uh, like um, first, first and foremost in the defense of, of Europe, uh, but also in the, in the grander scheme, right? So because for so long, um, you know, uh, NATO has also been mired in like, you know, soul searching and, and, you know, Ukraine happened, but that was in 2014, right? It's been six years um, and, and still um, a, a lot of issues going on there. Um, and... Um, yeah, so that's um, from the security uh, part. Um, also, like still uh, about Russia, I would say um, Joe Biden gave this interview where he very clearly stated that uh, he does consider Russia a big threat, um, especially in terms of the potential to, um, you know, uh, attack the alliances um, and attack not even on, at the hardest level, but really like, you know, disentangle the alliances and undermine them. Um, and, and again, like, you know, at least having this partner who is on the same page with you is, is a good thing. Um, and also the possibility of new arms deal uh, or like arms uh, negotiations, um, especially on, you know, when it comes to nuclear weapons and the start agreement. Uh, and uh, yeah, so in that sense, I think, um, you know, having again this, um, yeah, committed and stable president uh, would be a good thing for Europe. And from a European perspective, do you think much is going to change really in the relationship between the US and the EU slash Europe more generally? Um, yeah, so that's the thing uh, about substance. It might still be hard to tell. Well, we know for sure that the rhetoric uh, will very likely change to the to the better, right? And, uh, you know, you, you may think that it's a small thing, but like, you know, sometimes even the words, like they really do matter. And especially I think uh, I'm thinking here about Germany. Uh, like if you think about Trump's like rel relentless assaults on, on Germany and like, you know, how it's not doing enough and like how, you know, he does, he does not like Merkel, um, then uh, I think uh, Biden would be the opposite of that. Um, but, but it is a fair point to say, like, you know, um, will we just see the more of the same, essentially, or will we actually be able to move um, on um, a, in a number of issues. Um, I think, like, I am hopeful, um, for example, also in the, in the climate uh, domain, uh, that, uh, you know, Joe Biden has also said that, you know, first of all, rejoin the Paris Agreement, but then also 
actually like you know work together with the EU on on becoming global uh, climate leaders. I think this is something that is desperately needed, um, and also in terms of trade. Like, you know, the, the trade war that Trump has been uh, waging uh, with all the tariffs and, um, you know, the un unnecessary uh, burdens and obstacles. I think removing this and uh, perhaps even giving a new go at, uh, well, I don't know if, like, at TTIP. Um, like, I, I don't know if it has, like, full potential to be become what it was uh, envisioned at one point. Uh, but um, a fresh look at transatlantic trade, um, I think it doesn't hurt to, to think about these topics. Uh, Jack Megan, recommend this? Yeah, I think I'm hopeful that under a Biden administration that we will move more towards multilateral cooperation. I think that the Trump administration has done a really good job of isolating America from its allies. Um, Annalisa mentioned the Paris Climate Accords. I think that I'm, that's one thing that I'm really looking forward to us continuing or us rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. Um, we saw Trump pulling out of a bunch of different multilateral agreements just on the basis of like America first and, um, you know, these aren't fair to us. But, you know, the 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 foundation of multilateral cooperation is kind of differentiated responsibility based on different like different means and different um, kind of abilities. And so as a, a wealthy, developed country, that means that we have more responsibility than some other countries. And I think that that's something that Trump just was was never able to accept um, and really did a lot to isolate us from our allies. So I think, you know, I don't know if four years will be enough to kind of repair and, and fix all of the damage that Trump has done. But I think that, like, like Annalisa said, even just the words being different, us not kind of, or our president, our leader, not um, talking about our allies and as, as kind of enemies and um, thinking that our, our trade agreements and our different agreements are, are just bad for America. I think having a president that believes in global cooperation will be really refreshing and really good for America. I'm, I'm skeptical how much uh, can be done in four years. And also in the case that we have a Republican president again in four years, how much of that will be undone by that administration? Yeah, I think it's worth it's worth noting here a pretty influential political article saying like Trump or Biden, Europe is the loser. And one of the mm -hmm. main issues here is like, let's say TTIP and any negotiation takes good part of 10 years, these sort of massive negotiations. And unless there is concrete, if there's a Congress that's fully in support right now, maybe, but if the Senate is actually in Republican control, or at least can put up a strong, um, a strong objection to it, then it's unlikely that any of these major negotiations that Europe would want to do with the Biden administration could happen. And I think Biden would also probably be quite aware of that. Um, Jack, your, your take on the change of relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly a breath of fresh air that the occupant of the Oval Office, or presumptive occupant of the Oval Office, is going to be someone who respects the sort of, for lack of a better term, the American burden, that America is mm -hmm. the world leader for better or for worse. Uh, I think you can make the argument, it's an issue by issue argument, but there's been an abdication of that uh, under Donald Trump. And so, um, yeah, I think it's one of those things where four years, you know, you can undo something a lot quicker than you can sort of redo. And I think, you know, the first hundred days in the Biden administration are going to be, I think, just undoing a lot of the, at least the executive um, action stuff that, you know, sort of the unilateral stuff that Trump did, you know, those, those will be easy to undo. Um, 
And, and I think you'll see that, that Biden will become a president who uses executive orders if the Senate uh, or, or if the Senate doesn't get behind him. Uh, I, I did hear an analysis, though, that, you know, Biden was a former senator before he was the vice president. And he served with, um, I, th- I think the paths crossed with Mitch McConnell. And sort of, you know, people mm-hmm. are hoping that maybe the these two older men uh, with, you know, this kind of steeped uh knowledge of the Senate and sort of the the regalness of the upper house of Congress, you know, will be able to abide by the sort of the, the long-held traditions of the Senate, you know, is not, it's not supposed to be, you know, at least the way the framers envisioned it, the fistfights are supposed to happen, uh, you know, whether they're political or they're physical, fistfights happen in the House. The Senate is sort of a snotty breed above. Um, maybe there's some optimism that maybe both men, Mitch McConnell more so than Biden, will be able to kind of go back to that. And then you can get these more international solid agreements, um, you know, that, that, that favor Europe. It's definitely worth saying as well that, I mean, Joe Biden across his senatorial experience worked with Republicans quite a lot. He had an infamous relationship um, with, of course, John McCain, the late John McCain. Um, they were very close. And I mean, he he does work with senatorial republicans quite well so there is definitely that possibility of being able to to have widespread support and of course not to not forget kamala harris she served in the senate as well and and she was you know a powerhouse in the committee scene um a little bit more fire quite controversial for democrats to be honest kamala harris for her actions really yeah and she's maybe a little bit more firebrand than than Mm -hmm. than biden i wouldn't necessarily call him docile but he's definitely you know, sort of that more kind, you know, she's out there mm-hmm. to, to get stuff done. Uh, and I wonder mm-hmm. if they're, I, I'm sure they'll be able to sort of maybe even do like a bad cop, good cop sort of thing. And, and of course, Senator Harris's role as president of the Senate, um, you know, might might be helpful too. It's, it's always, I think it's very important to have someone who has knowledge of, of the body in that role. I was just about to move on to Kamala Harris for another reason, of course, one of um, her presumptive vice presidents, she'll be one of the first people ever from um, a South Asian American background to be elected to such a position. Um, moving on to essentially, people have criticized Joe Biden for being a copy of Obama in many senses, especially on his foreign policy. And I'm now going to yield to one of the most, I, one of the scariest aspects of foreign policy for Europeans on Obama was the pivot to Asia, essentially. Um, do you think there's a, another possibility that Joe Biden could pursue this as well? Do you think Joe Biden's going to redirect American energy towards Asia or emerging allies in Asia, such as India or Australia? Is there any, it's a bit of a, a link, but I think especially with Kamala Harris there as well, who has spoken quite a lot on Southeast Asian issues already. Um, is that a possibility for more global um, interest from the United States? Anyone want to come in on that large weighted question? I, I think that uh, maybe more so nowadays than at the beginning of Obama's administration in 2008 and and even his I don't know second in, into a second term Asia has become a, a much larger player um, I think that it, it's grown in importance as a region more so than just China I mean China's always been big uh, at least for the past few decades but you're you're right you're seeing other countries um, you know kick up their importance on the global stage so I don't Exactly. I don't think he's outlined precisely what his foreign policy is going to be as a leader. I mean, he's definitely done that as a candidate. But, you know, I think he's going to certainly take, this is Joe Biden, is going to take a more measured approach and is going to Mm -hmm. figure out what, you know, with the limited resources, of course, 
you know, that he has as a president without the cooperation of the Senate, you know, what can he get done? Um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, you know, there maybe not necessarily a pivot to Asia in the way that Obama did, but definitely a focus on uh, Asia and even Africa. What I'd like to see, and again, this is just sort of a personal statement, is the U.S. start to counter China, especially China's uh, BRI uh, program. I mm-hmm. think that they've definitely taken advantage of a, an American vacuum the past four years in international relations, uh, and they've been able to sort of expand their uh, their reach through the BRI into Asia, into to Africa, and even parts of, of Eastern Europe. So I think all of that feeds to serve China at the detriment of the U.S. and even at the detriment of the states who, who get into these BRI agreements. Again, a conversation for another day. But I'd like to see the U.S. start to counter that a little bit and start to expand its own influence to counter, you know, the more aggressive or, or the more adversarial uh, tendencies of China and even Russia. Definitely. Um, I'd love to hear your comments on this, especially with the, with the China relation. Annalisa, do you want to come in? Um, yeah, no, like, I mean, there's so much to unpack here and like, you know, regarding the, the global relations. But um, if I just may, like, you know, take the most like abstract level possible, then I think we are kind of living through a, a period of, of, you know, flux right now because because the world order is is shifting. Um, that is, you know, that is undeniable, even if you just look at, you know, China's economic might, uh, if you want to take that as your uh, indicator. Uh, but the, just the other day, I was reading this article where uh, this uh, the diplomatic historian was, well, I mean, he was actually talking about the Pax Americana, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, you might understand as this uh, hierarchical uh, organiz- um, organization of like international uh, relations where the US takes the, you know, the most of the responsibility. And then he, he actually ended his article by saying that, uh, you know, if we treat Trump as a freak of history, then we will misunderstand and underestimate him. And, uh, you know, Trump as, as the mad king, um, he actually appears to grasp the reality that has escaped many of us. And the reality is that is an international order which is centered upon and the singular capacities of U.S. Is it really sustainable into the future? And I think this is the big question. Um, of course, I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> and the only hope I have is that uh, whatever, uh, you know, uh, reshifting and rebalancing of world order we will have, it will be as multilateral and, um, you know, as inclusive as possible. Maybe it's a naive hope, but, but this is also something that Biden has actually advocated for when he said that in his first 100 days, he will actually call for a global summit of democracies. Uh, to you know, renew the spirit and the shared vision uh, of yeah. the nations of the free world. I mean, let's see what comes out of this initiative. But in a way, it's similar to what has also been, uh, I think, advocated by uh, and, and, uh, some UK politicians, uh, the, the D10, so uh, 10 democracies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think you know, a global summit like that would even be more inclusive. Um, and, um, yeah, so, um, and coming to, you know, Jack's point about China, of of course, um, well, it was interesting that like China wasn't as big of a topic in the election campaign as some people predicted because, um, and, and, and I think the simple reason for that is that there was so much more going on, right? So it's not like you can focus on one topic only, um, 
but but the, anyway, like you know, China is um, you know rising if you if you want to say it like that. Um, and I think Biden has also said that like you know if he were president, then he would really take like this transatlantic approach. And and you know when it comes to five G, for example, he would really even promote some uh, European companies such as Nokia or Ericsson. Um, as the transatlantic uh, alliance's uh, 5G champions, um, and I think that's even already like you know a good like concrete plan of uh, you know at least putting something out there against uh, or like to counter China, right? Um, I mean, you can talk as abstract as you want, but then at the end of the day, you know, you, you need your own solutions. And if you if you talk about like getting rid of the dependency, then you know propose your own solutions, right? And um, I think that's one step in in that direction. Maybe maybe a quick conversation or a quick question uh, that's I'd argue somewhat related uh, for the Europeans uh, in this chat and even Megan if you, if you want to jump in, do you think that the U.S. should still be a global leader? Uh, do you think it it it's how do I phrase this? Do you you know post World War II era you know up until mm-hmm. you know January twentieth two thousand and seventeen. You know, America really was the global leader. Do you think that was okay? Something that should still continue on, or you know, should there be maybe a more multilateral approach? I think it it very much depends. Yeah, where the European Union is going in its own sense, because there is already right now strong factionalism within the EU about whether Europe and the EU should try and take a leadership approach. Um, and this is also a subtle way for the European Union to try and get their own powers and their own competences in areas they haven't before. Um, but fundamentally, I think that's damaging. I think that is potentially very worrying to see these kind of elements within the EU. It's also quite a British perspective, I have to say. Um, start to see themselves as the solution. We are the we are the best option. I think U.S. leadership has been very useful in the sense that it's always been tempered with a lot of discussion and communication with with allies across the pond um, and also in Latin America, of course, Canada as well. Um, I would, I think the idea would be co-leadership in that sense, multipolarization, um, in which the EU and the US are some of the driving forces, along with emerging democracies like India, I think, looking at Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, are becoming quite important, quite key players in the region, whilst also, and will eventually become some of the largest, most dominant countries on the planet. That's just a fact that like, soon Lagos will be the largest city on earth, larger than Tokyo, larger than New York, larger than London or Moscow, or even Beijing. And there's going to be a need to rework the global system for that. And I don't think there is another actor who can reshape the system for the benefit of the most other than the US. I don't think the EU could do it. I think they're far too insular and too protectionist in their own way. Um, I definitely don't think China should do it. (laughs) I I have my own thoughts in China, but I think they would also mostly use it to funnel things back into China. And I think the US is the best leader to do so. Of course, why would the leader ever want to give up their own power? That's that's a a strong criticism. but I would say that just as Annalisa did, Trump was a very important step of Americans also reconsidering, should we do this? Why should we do this? Why are others not possible? Um, why do we, we put all the effort on ourselves? Um, so it's, the US should maintain being a leader, but 
it would also have to grasp the fact that it cannot for long, as you mentioned, sustainability. It's not sustainable. The US is not as rich, it's not as powerful, it's not as impressive as it once was. Um, and neither will China be as impressive as they think they are or once was. Um, so in the historical context, for now, it's definitely for the best. Um, but uh, it's interesting, yeah. Philip, that, uh, you know, you're European, but you just said, like, you know, that Americans had to, like, you know, look into themselves and think, like, should we do it? Because I would actually um, turn it around and say that, you know, it has also uh, forced or, or, like, you know, propelled the other actors to, to think about their own autonomy and, like, you know, their own capability to, you know, you know, be an actor, right? Especially in terms of EU, if you follow the entire, like, strategic autonomy debate, um, but, but then Jack, your question was interesting because, uh, yeah, so about like, you know, the U S became the world leader, um, after the world war two and like, you know, should it continue? Um, I think my personal take on that would be that I've always had like a bit of an issue with that because the U S leadership has not been particularly inclusive, especially if you think about, um, Europe as well, uh, in the sense that like, you know, Europe was divided and like, you know, there was East and West in Europe as well. And like, I'm coming from Estonia and like, you know, we were occupied by the Soviet union and, you know, it was, it was 50 years. Um, and you know, if you listen to the rhetoric now, it's still very much, um, you know, focusing on how, you know, the UK and France and US, they won the World War II. And like, you know, that gives them the legitimacy forever to, you know, be the world leaders. Um, but I just think there's so much more to Europe as well. Um, and, and of course, like not even to mention the other um, parts of the world, right? Like, <laughs> it's, and I think that the US hasn't like included them uh, too much at all. Um, I have this hope uh, that, you know, there will be a, a more multilateral world order, but of course, like to see it realized uh, will be a long wait, I think. And also, I don't know what form it will take, uh, but this is my hope. I think we are going to have to wrap up soon, but I would like some final comments from everyone. Megan, apologies, haven't been able to, to get to you for, for a while now of our cycles. Um, any kind of final comments you want to make? On, on whatever aspects you want. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, that's okay. You guys are the Europe experts. So when it comes to uh, that, I am happy to yield the floor. Um, final comments. I guess I'm interested to see, I think a lot of the focus um, in this election between Biden and Trump has been very domestic focused. There's been so many fires to put out domestically, so many different areas that we need to address internally that the focus really hasn't been on Biden's foreign policy platform at all. So I think it'll be interesting to see also, you know, even if he does have a plan uh, for foreign policy, how much of that will actually be able to be realized um, with a a likely Republican controlled Congress, um, or whether he'll just be stuck in gridlock uh, because of the way that that all of this shook out. Um, I think overall, uh, a Biden presidency will be more positive for multilateral cooperation. Like we've talked about, I'm looking forward to rejoining multilateral agreements that we've pulled out of like the Paris Climate Accords, but also hesitant that uh four years will be enough to kind of restore all the damage that a Trump presidency has been done. But I guess I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic, looking forward to having like a more stable leader that will kind of re re-emphasize our role in the on the global stage um and give more legitimacy to 
the United States as a global leader. I think uh, it'll take some time to recover, but um, that hopefully Biden will be will put us on that path at the very least um, towards more global cooperation. Very good point as well. I mean, if, let's say, Trump elements do not manage to win out, let's say, in 2024, and we have, I don't know, more of a centrist, center-right uh, Republican leaning, it's very likely they would continue a Biden administration plan. As you mentioned, he ran more of a unity candidate. Um, and of course, compared to us Europeans, he is already quite center-right already. Um, so yeah, very interesting. Uh, Jack, final comment? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, despite all of the um, issues and the gridlock that he's uh, and also the mess that he's going to inherit, I think a uh, Biden administration is going to be a net positive. Um, I do want to throw in, Megan did talk a lot about rejoining things. We get to rejoin the WHO mm -hmm. as well. Um, yes, the WHO, yeah. That, that's a, a, a critically important... And uh, UNESCO. Yeah, UNESCO. And, and, and possibly the Iran nuclear deal. The Human Rights Council. Yeah. yeah. So I think that those things can be quick and those things can be easy to sort of, you know, restabilize and reorient American foreign policy back in the direction that it was before Trump um, and that it ought to remain after Trump and after Biden, um, you know, because for all their flaws and for all their issues, you know, it is better to have those um, institutions in place than to have uh, to, to have uh, to have them sort of uh, falter and fall. Um, and of course, for the U.S., we can't do anything about those issues if we're not at the table. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, there are so again certainly are issues, and I think the, the the Biden team will point out that there are issues in foreign policy that cannot be solved by just having U.S. participation and U.S. involvement, but that we need to be a part of those solutions and not, you know, taking you know the the, the Trump administration took their ball and they went home, um, mm -hmm. and they they decided to, you know throw up the America first. I think that it is possible um, that good can come out in the next four years and that hopefully it will lead to another four, eight years of um, whether a democratic or even a more moderate Republican oriented foreign policy. Um, I think the referendum that this election was supposed to be on Trumpism failed spectacularly. Um, you know, to, to Annalise's point a little bit earlier, that is concerning. Uh, I certainly believe that we're going to see some Trump run in 2024. Um, I don't think it's going to be DJT. I think he might be just a little bit too old, um, but definitely his son. I think, you know, uh, who does daddy love more, Eric or Don Jr.? You know, it's going to be a bunker. Personally, I believe it'll be a bunker. Or Ivanka, exactly, or you know, you know, Vice President Kushner or something. I think you will see these candidates uh, from the family try and run, but you might also see maybe in the Biden administration a more, you know, a, a more moderate Republican center start to form, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe Trumpism will go the way of the Tea Party. It was big for a little bit, and then it got pushed to the end. I don't know. I, I just don't know. That's that's what I'm hoping, um, and that's what it might look like. Because you might look at candidates in these places that were once solidly red, embrace and and you saw it a little bit in the midterm elections in 2018 with the House that candidates there were some candidates who embraced Trumpism, and it backfired on them. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say some of the senatorial candidates even in this race didn't want to touch Trump with a 10 foot pole, uh, and that seemed to kind of work out for them. Um, I know we're digressing a little bit, but I, I think that people will sort of 
they're, they're, they got caught up in the Trumpism. They got caught up in the mm-hmm. power and, and everything that it brought. Uh, and that power is going to fade quite, quite as fast. It's going to fade as quickly as it arose. So mm-hmm. we'll see where it goes. Okay. Annalisa, please. Um, yeah, so my final comment is really um, from a very specific perspective, again, like, you know, from Estonia, but also like a wider, like Central Eastern Europe, I would say, um, especially in terms of the security relationship, because this is essentially the point where we are talking to the US uh, about the most. Uh, and this is, you know, US as our main security guarantor, um, all that jazz. Um, and like at the end of the day, like if Trump, if, if Trump were to win, like we would still have to work with him as well, right? So we would have to work with whoever is in the White House um, because, you know, as a small state, you really don't have the luxury of choosing. You cannot be picky. You really just work with whoever is there. Um, but on the other hand, I can also confirm that, like, actually the security relations have been quite good, um, especially on, like, a working group level and, like, you know, bureaucratic level. So there has actually been progress and as I said, like, you know, that is the credit we do have to give Trump regarding the budget debate and like, you know, countries actually committing more to the defense. Um, but um, of course, like, you know, if Biden were to win and if Trump gets removed from office, then we would lose the, the rhetoric. And I think I won't miss it. Um, and I really hope that like, uh, you know, some of the nationalist governments also we see in uh, this part of Europe, um, maybe they would lose the, the figure who they so desperately tried to, you know, imitate. And perhaps that would also, um, you know, change the political debate and cult- culture in in these countries, which would be like an amazing ripple effect. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I definitely want to add on to that as well. I mean, uh, PIS in Poland saw Trump as one of their main figures. Fort Trump does exist and won't be renamed, likely. Let's remember that. There is the NATO fort in Poland now. Um, and we already see now changing rhetoric in the EU on the rule of law. They finally passed the re- rule of law. And I think you can guarantee that President Biden would support such rule of law efforts, which Trump would not. And that's quite a big deal yeah, for Europeans yeah. that I don't think Americans would really see. Um, there's one more thing I want to add, which is hopefully a Biden administration can end the hollowing out of the U.S. Um, State Department, which has been critically underfunded, undermanned, understaffed throughout the entire, as soon as Trump entered office, essentially. And um, although I'm sure Biden will aim for you know harmony, I hope Pompeo does not remain um, and that there will be a new state secretary there who will do a lot more of a better job with it. Um, and that is only going to be good for the rest of the world, really. Maybe the influence of the US can be problematic, but they are usually the best at getting messages across, uh, transmitting messages, uh, peace negotiations, even when the US does, of course, contribute to the breakdown, a lot of them, they are still very good in many of these areas. Um, and so that is hopefully one of the main changes we're also going to see from Biden administration. Well, now the, uh, now the big thing is we got through November 3rd, 2020. Uh, we're still mm-hmm. trying to get through it a little bit, but the... Uh, uh, the next challenge and the next problematic date on the calendar is now going to be January 20th, uh, 2021 at noon. Will the president, the current president, will President Indeed. Trump vacate the White House? And um, there was a, I do want to highlight the the Biden campaign came out with a statement yesterday, uh, something to the effect of, uh, and I quote, uh, the U.S. government would have no problem removing a trespasser from the White House. So... We'll we'll see how it goes. I, I will Trump be the first president to, uh, you know, should this go Biden's he, way or when he this can goes? lock himself in the basement, can't he? Like you're not allowed to. You can't open that from the outside. 
I don't I don't know what he'd do, but I I, I it begs the question of will will the uh, the forty fifth yeah, will the 45th president of the United States be the first one to refuse the transition, the peaceful transition of power? No, but there is a tweet about that, right? So in 2016, Trump himself tweeted, like, Hillary Clinton doesn't know how to lose. Each side should be able to lose. How pathetic. <laughs> That's true. How pathetic. I like that cliffhanger. I think we'll leave it on that cliffhanger here. We will, we will come back to you, I'm sure, on uh, January 20th to see what the result of that was. Thank you very much to all of our speakers today. Uh, thank you very much to Megan for coming all the way from New York. Well, not coming all the way, speaking for us from New York at least. Um, Jack, of course, for joining us again. And Annalise for joining us the first time. Hopefully we'll hear from you again. We'll definitely invite you on future episodes of this. So thank you all. And thank you all those for listening. We will be back soon, hopefully in a few weeks with more episodes of The Greater European Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend.